Hey, welcome to late night post-Thanksgiving night school. Not that it really is any different than any other night for me. But, uh, you know, any time that I spread my infection, like I have been lately, which, you know, it's, it's probably just something I do all the time now. But any time I spread the political in- infection, it's not that I regret what I say, but it's just it, I always have that feeling afterwards like I shouldn't have done it, like I shouldn't have said it. Maybe I shouldn't have talked about that. It's what you're hearing everywhere else. It's what you're probably trying to escape from in other aspects of your life, everything else that you're paying attention to in the world. I like to imagine that anybody who listens this to this show at this point would rather escape all of that because I'd like to believe that I have more to offer than that. I'd like to believe I have more to offer than just the political infection. But the nature of infection is you can't control it. And so it's always regrettable when I feel that I indulge that too much. And, you know, I've kept up my meditation. I haven't stopped meditating at any point since I started, and I've taken very few breaks. I've been less dedicated to it. I've been less, like, I've done it, but I, it's, I go through periods where I just go through the motions, and I realize the importance of that. Even though it's it's not what you feel, or rather, you know it's not, you're not getting the full effect of it when you're just going through the motions of meditation. But it's still important to do that rather than not doing it at all. And, you know, like that Alan Watts quote that I like, you meditate so you don't have to meditate. And it's not a big deal if you don't meditate. But even if you're just going through the motions, just taking the time to sit and close your eyes. If you do mantras, go through your mantras. If your mantra is silence, just doing that has its own importance too. And I'm a morning meditator, and of course it's recommended that you do it twice a day, morning and night. And there are different experiences. I personally feel that Meditating in the morning is more valuable because you clear yourself for your day. And nighttime, I've never really had a problem settling at night. And so it feels less important to me to sit and meditate before I go to bed or late at night. It's not that it's less valuable, but it just, it doesn't seem to have as much importance in my life. But when I do it, I realize the importance of it, and I just got done doing it, which is why I'm talking about it. And it it really makes that much of a difference. And I always think back to this weird opinion that I had years ago. And I was talking last night about how good it is to be wrong, how good it is to be wrong about something and to walk something back. Because when you're wrong and you correct your viewpoint, or your viewpoint just becomes corrected by experience, is probably more accurate. It's not even that you're walking it back. It's not even that you're putting your tail between your legs. You're actually walking forward. So maybe the phrase walking it back isn't the best one, even though it's the one we use. It's actually walking forward. It is, though, because it's expansive. And meditation is one of those things, you know, I've mentioned before how 
it's in print that I was opposed to meditation. What a weird opinion to have. It's so strange to me that I had this hardline anti-meditation opinion, and I think that was just oppositional defiance. And if you're like me and you just kind of have this ingrained rebel spirit about things, especially when you're a young man, a young man, you end up forming opinions about things that, one, you don't know anything about, and two, that what, ev- what motivation do you even have to form an opinion around that? Why did I have an anti-meditation opinion? Well, I kind of know. It was in response to what I thought other people were getting out of it based on how they came across to me, the sort of things they said, the sort of aesthetic they adopted. And a lot of that was this sort of Western New Age Buddhism that at the time was repellent to me. But I didn't actually know what they were doing. And it's so funny to me that that's in print that somebody did an interview with me for my noise project and asked me about a title I used. Because it wasn't just a one-off opinion. It was an idea I had formed. Even prior to this interview, I had a song title for this noise project called Meditative Consequence. And this person, at the interviewer, an Eastern European guy, Levas, I don't know how to pronounce his name, L-E-V-A-S, Levas, Leva, Levas. He asked me about that title and he was like, what's your opinion on meditation? You have this title, Meditative Consequence. And I was like, I think meditation's a, a joke. I think it's a horrible thing to do. I think that if you're a negative person and you meditate, you just create more negativity in your mind. If you're a negative person and you meditate, well, that's how serial killers are created. That's basically what I said. I explained it a little more than that, but I had no idea what I was talking about. I know what led to me thinking that, but I enjoy that I can look back on that and say, I I was completely wrong about that. And even just a night like tonight, where I just sat down at the end of the night and I was like, you know what, I don't meditate at night very much anymore. But when I do, it's very deliberate. And even if it just feels like going through the motions or an exercise, when I finish, I notice a difference. It does put me in a substantially different place before I go to bed. And so I'm glad that I was wrong about that. I don't feel that I had to walk back that opinion. I feel that I actually move forward by no longer having some strange, off-base, presumptuous opinion about what meditation is and what it does. I was wrong about something else, too, I realized. I realized today that I was wrong about something I mentioned yesterday. I commented how Obama bin Biden, there was a video going around that was apparently edited to make it sound like he said, end of quote, like he was just reading from a teleprompter. He was reading what he was saying and didn't realize he wasn't supposed to say that. Apparently that was deceptive. Apparently he was actually quoting something. So I was wrong about that, too. And to be fair, I didn't frame it as some sort of anti-Jobama bin Biden point. As I was saying last night, like, I have no issue with him, actually. I didn't vote for him. I don't necessarily like, I, not even necessarily, I don't like what he represents to people. But I have no issue with Jobama bin Biden. I, I find him absurd. I find his presidency absurd. 
I found Trumpsfeld absurd in his own right, too. I don't see how you couldn't find these people absurd. And I enjoy absurdity. So when I made that point, I, I just thought it was funny. It wasn't, I didn't say it because I hate Obama bit Biden. But it was another example of where I was wrong. I saw a deceptive clip. What we call it a deceptive clip. Of course, there are pl- plenty of clips where he does say things like that, to be fair, too. He does say the wrong thing. It's clear he's reading from a teleprompter, as Obama did as well, as most of these people do. But I just have to admit, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong. I enjoy being wrong. I get a certain thrill out of being truly wrong about something, whether it's my opinion on meditation, which is embarrassingly in print. But I kind of enjoy that something was put in print that is so absurd, too. Like, it's absurd that I had this hardline anti-meditation opinion and that it was printed. I own, I have a piece of paper in a zine where I say this. But getting back to the infection and just that need to vent. Because it is, it does seem to be unavoidable. It does seem to be unavoidable just dealing with people right now, observing anything, even observing entertainment, even just a day like Thanksgiving. All of this stuff is swirling around. All of this animosity. And I can say that I don't hate anybody. Even though people upset me, I don't feel that the state that we're in right now has made me hate anybody. I used to hate people more often. I wouldn't say that I never feel hatred for anybody, but I don't fundamentally hate anybody. And I'd like to believe that I love them all. And when people say that, it doesn't sound believable because we know how hard that is to do. But I've gone through periods where I do truly love everyone. And I don't hate anybody for what they're doing. It's more of a classic dad response where I do feel this level of disappointment these days. I feel disappointed at the way people are behaving, at the way they're expressing themselves to each other, the level of contempt they have, the way they dissect each other. And I'm a dissector. I dissect things. I dissect people. But it's the way that people are dissecting each other that bothers me so much. And it's more disappointment than it is animosity on my part. Even if I do get mad. Sometimes you get mad when you're disappointed. And I'm disappointed to see how easily people fall into these classic pitfalls. How easily they can be led to dissect, to dissect each other in the most horrible ways. That's where a lot of this comes from on my part. But, um, you know, it does make a difference to have some sort of practice in your life. 
it does make a difference to have some sort of spiritual knowledge in the Gnostic sense, lowercase g, Gnostic, not capital G, Gnostic. You know, I do believe that makes a difference. It makes a difference to believe in something larger that is also infinitesimally small, because that's what it is. To know that it's not just this makes a difference to me. And to not come to that idea by choice. Like Carl Jung being asked if he believes in God and saying, no, he knows God. It's not a matter of belief. Because belief almost suggests some level of choice. And if you come to know God, it's an, ex- it's a, an, experi- it's an experiential knowledge. And the word belief alone doesn't seem to do that feeling justice. And today was a good day to meditate at night, too, because my friend Anna came over, and she's been one of my best friends since my mom died. You know, she and I dated a couple times very, very briefly. It was not meant to be in any way. And we go back, and this, you know, the first time we dated, I believe, was like seven or eight years ago. I think eight years ago now. Seven or eight years ago. And she's the one who, her friend was dating Crispin Glover, and she went to the castle to help take care of her friend, who was a very talented artist who's no longer alive. But her friend was dating Crispin Glover, so she stayed in the castle, and I've spoken about that before. But we've just been platonic friends for years now. And, uh, you know, she's been one of the few people that I really see with any regularity, one of the only friends in Olympia that I actually see anymore. And I think part of that is because, I don't know, she, she has a lot going on in her life. And so some of the things that disappoint me about other people are not present in her because she's distracted with other issues in her life. And... um She's also somebody who's experienced death very closely. And I find that my experience with my mom's death, not the emotional side of it. A lot of people can talk about the emotional side of death. But very few people can talk about the reality of death. The truth about death. And so I think one of the reasons why she's been a constant in my life since my mom passed away is because... It's not necessarily that she has the same experiences or the same perspective, but she's somebody who knows the truth about death. And when you've seen that, not that it's the only truth, but when you've experienced it, I mean, it's very much like what I just said about what I paraphrased, what I just paraphrased from Carl Jung about not believing in God, but knowing God. And I wouldn't be so audacious to say that I know death. Oh, God, I know death. But... I was saying to her tonight, because the reason she was over today was she's helping me sell my mom's bed, which is a big deal to me. It was where my mom spent her final days. She didn't die in her bed, but when she was infected with a very real infection, necrotizing fasciitis, 
she didn't leave her bed and we didn't know what it was, but she was in her bed the entire time. And my mom had a really nice bed that she greatly valued. And so her bed is very symbolic to me. And I've just kept it. I've just had my mom's bed. The night my mom died, I slept in her bed. It's the only night I did that. I'm not Norman Bates. I didn't just start sleeping in my mom's bed for the rest of my life. But it felt like the right thing to do. It felt like a way of being close to my mom. And I don't even know that I thought of it that way. It's just what I did. The enormity of what had happened that afternoon led me to just sleep in my mom's bed. It was the last place she had been before she went to the hospital. And it was the most surreal experience waking up in her bed, a place I had never slept. I had never slept in her bed in this house. And so waking up in her bed to the reality of her not being here. And anytime you wake up in a place, in a room that you've never slept in, like I used to have that experience when I drank, where I would sleep on somebody's couch and I would forget where I was and how I got there. And especially if I had blacked out, I had no idea. Sometimes you would just go to someone's house after the bar and crash on their couch. And anytime you wake up to a foreign ceiling or foreign surroundings, it's strange. And so that was my experience that next morning sleeping in my mom's bed as I woke up and I looked around and I was just like, this is weird. And, and that feeling of knowing, oh, this is the first morning waking up after my mom's death. That's a pretty big thing. But I, I hadn't slept in my mom's bed after that. I didn't make some weird decision. Not that it would be weird necessarily. But I knew that wasn't something I was going to do again. But I kept her bed. I, I washed her sheets and I made her bed. And I've just kept it. Not as some kind of altar. But it's like two months later, Coroni Vi shut the world down. And basically, the process of getting rid of her things slowed to a halt. And getting rid of a bed is a big deal. It's an ordeal. So it just stayed there. And so she came over today to help me prepare it to sell. Because it's a nice bed. It's a nice bed, okay? And she did the whole thing. You know, she dismantled it. She took a bunch of nice photos of it that I could post online. And she dismantled it. She dismantled the frame for me. And I was talking to her afterward, and I was just saying how one of the strangest things about that experience, and you know, with with the two-year anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks, it's obviously on my mind, combined with the fact that I've also been going through a lot more of her things again, so I very well might comment on it unapologetically on here, given all of the banal things that people talk about. I'm completely unapologetic about talking about that, and I don't bring it up to be sentimental, And if I am sentimental, that's okay, but I don't bring it up to be sentimental. It's philosophically fascinating. It's the most, as I said, I think in the first episode I did after she died, most fascinating experience I've ever had. Most, I mean, can you, I mean, just think about that. Like watching the person who created you, the person whose womb I exited died in front of me. How could that not be the most fascinating thing I've ever experienced? And I had a level of clarity because I actually, I was meditating in the, in the uh, emergency, in the uh, ICU unit. 
I finished reading this book on Buddhism my mom had given me a week earlier. And she was in surgery where she actually died initially. And while she was in surgery dying, and I kind of knew, even though it wasn't necessarily, they didn't tell me there was a chance she was going to die in surgery. I kind of knew, you know, I kind of knew that if that wasn't just a possibility, I kind of knew it was going to happen. And uh, so I finished reading this book on Buddhism she had bought me, and I sat there in this chair in an empty ICU unit while she was dying, and I just meditated. And I was actually able to meditate. You know, it wasn't the deep, I mean, I don't know, I think it was a fairly deep meditation. It wasn't the deepest I've ever meditated, but I wasn't gripped by anxiety. It was a relatively tranquil experience, but definitely a unique meditation to say the least. And, uh, you know, just to, to walk back, to walk forward. To, to move, I'm trying to think of where I was going with that. Um, I guess, you know, there was a podcast that I used to listen to for years where the guy's mom had died and he would bring it up sometimes. And he was a spiritual guy, so you could tell it impacted him greatly. And he seemed a little bit apologetic about it. Probably for the same reasons that I'm a little hesitant to bring it up. Because you run the risk of of talking about something that might make people uncomfortable, or they might think that you're having a hard time with it. They might think you're being sentimental. They might think you're grieving. And that's not what I'm doing when I talk about it. I'm talking about it because it's the most fascinating thing I've ever experienced. When you take away all the emotion, when you take away the relationship itself, I mean, you really can't take that away. But just when you look at it for what it is, the person whose womb I exited, the person who made me, I watched them die. I watched her die. And so how could that not be the most fascinating thing I've ever seen, especially given our preoccupation with death, the mystery of death? And just to get back to why I'm bringing this up, it's, you know, my friend Anna was here and I said to her before she left, because obviously I'm thinking about my mom the entire night because my mom's bed, which had become a symbol of her. It's really the most intimate object in my house, given it was the last place my mom spent time. It's where she slept. She greatly valued her bed. She loved her bed. She loved being in bed watching TV at night. Her bed was sacred to her. And so out of everything in my house, like, yeah, there are personal objects, there are pictures, there are things that have a great deal of meaning and value. But in terms of her and her earthly existence, the bed was really an extension of her. If anything in this house was an extension of her, that bed was. And so naturally, she was on my mind all day. And, uh, you know, I said to Anna, though, I was like, you know, one of the strangest parts of all this is... I don't know who has actually seen somebody die before their very eyes. Like, out of all the people I know, even people who have lost their parents, lost loved ones, I don't know who has actually seen somebody die 
in front of them. I'm not talking about visiting them a few hours before. Like, I know when my grandparents died, my uncle was there, but I'm not sure if he was in the room. I'm not sure if they actually passed away while he was awake watching them in the hospital. It's not something most people bring up. And I know a lot of people have seen their loved ones die. But when I'm thinking about people I know, I don't know of anyone who's had that actual experience. And in many ways, it's like when you've taken a drug and someone you know hasn't, how there's no way you can actually communicate what that is. There's no way you can communicate that knowledge. You can describe it, but it's beyond description. And watching someone die is, I mean, it cheapens it to compare it to a drug, but it's just, it's the closest analogy I can come up with. Because you've experienced something that they haven't experienced, and what do you say about that? And so that's something that separates me from virtually everybody I know that I know of. Some people might not talk about that, or I just might not know that about them. But thinking about my friends, my family, virtually everyone that I have direct communication with, I know that they have not watched someone die. They have not watched at least their closest loved one die in front of them while touching them, while holding their hand. And that's just another part of the, that's, that's just one more element that makes that experience that much more fascinating. That makes me different. And not in a self-superior way, it simply makes me different to have experienced that. And it's glorious. People think of that as a sad thing. Yeah, it's loss. It's, there's, there's grief. It's surreal. But you know what? Surreal doesn't really fit. It, it changes your sense of reality in that moment to experience that. But it felt more real than anything else that I've ever experienced. It's surreal when you compare it to your regular life that you go through every day. But that's actually surreal compared to that moment. That moment was far too pure. Far too pure to be called surreal. And unless somebody's experienced that, they don't know what that is. And they might experience that in a different way. I don't claim to be on a high horse about it. You know, somebody else might have seen their loved one pass after a horrible accident, or the circumstances might have been much worse, or they might have had a room full of grieving relatives. I mean, in many ways, I'm grateful that I was alone with my mom. Even though it would have been nice in some ways to have family there, friends there, the fact that I got to be in a closed-off area alone with my mom as she died. Who can say that? Certainly there are other people, but it's a privilege and a rare experience because you can't script that. You can't plan that. And so I was just saying to my friend tonight, I was just like, you know, that's something that I don't know. And even, you know, her dad died in the next room 16 years ago. But she said, you know, I didn't actually see him die. I found him dead. 
she's the one who I mentioned who her when she was a teenager, her boyfriend who had never done hard drugs, got a hold of methadone from somebody had never done it before and OD'd on it that night. And he died in bed with her. She woke up to him dead. But, you know, she was saying she's even though like one of the reasons I think that she's been my one of my closest friends for the past two years is in part because she knows the truth of death. I'd kind of forgotten that she hadn't actually seen that happen. Like she hadn't actually seen the moment when the heart stops beating and the lungs stop breathing. And I don't take that for granted and it doesn't make me feel like I have some greater understanding of anything. It's simply a unique experience. In some ways, it's like having a little secret. And even though I don't feel the need to keep it to myself, like as I'm talking about now, you know, it's like I like talking about this because it's fascinating. I can't think of anything more fascinating than that. But it is like being initiated into some club, some secret club. And I don't expect my death to necessarily be like that. I don't necessarily expect other people's deaths to be like that. I may, I, I mean, I'm a human being. I will certainly encounter death one way or another again. I don't expect it to be like that. But it still does feel like some kind of initiation. And you want to talk about spirituality. And I mean, what is fundamentally more spiritual than watching your mother die? Not just watching her wither away like some people you know when people say like oh i watched my loved one die sometimes they're referring to the process leading up to death but i'm talking about the moment of death the actual moment and what sort of ritual what sort of text what sort of teaching what psychedelic drug what kind of epiphany compares to that? They don't. No, meditation, no comparison. Nothing compares to that. That is, it was the most fundamentally spiritual moment I could ever imagine. Because the spirit was leaving the body and I was a witness to it. Not that I saw her ghost get out and leave her body but it's death. And it brings me back to Ramdas. You know, this is one of my favorite, it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Because I heard, I heard this after my mom died. You know, I'm not a big Ramdas guy. You know, he's obviously adjacent to some people I like. I'm a huge Alan Watts fan. I wouldn't call myself a big Ramdas guy, but I always enjoy, on the rare occasion that I'll like throw on a Ramdas lecture or an interview, I enjoy it. I probably wouldn't have back in the days 10 years ago when I was anti-meditation. But Ram Dass, he's very unpretentious. And he's funny. And, you know, as he said, death is completely safe. <laughs> you know, he has that joke about a ghost visiting a living person. And he's like, you can ask me anything you want. 
And naturally, the living person asks the obvious question, which is, you know, well, what's death like? What's it like to die? That's what we all want to know. Because we all want to know what death is actually like, it's one of the most basic, and not basic in a simple sense, but just it's, it's one of the most fundamental philosophical questions we have. What does it mean to die? What is it like to die? And so, of course, that's what you're going to ask a ghost. And so this guy, he asks the ghost, like, what's it like to die? And the ghost is like, well, I can tell you this. It's completely safe. Funny. That's so funny. I heard that after my mom died, and I just laughed. I, I, I erupted in laughter because it was so true. Not that I know what death is like, but watching the death of my mom was that. I realized how safe it is. Not necessarily the pain leading up to it. Not necessarily the circumstances, but the moment of death. Safe. Oh, oh, it's completely safe. Don't worry. <laughs> because, you know, even though we worry about dying a painful or excruciating death, even though we worry about not accomplishing what we want to accomplish or not dying at the right time, there's a part of us that's very worried that death isn't safe. That it's not okay to die, <laughs> you know? And so Ram Dass's little joke is so funny to me because it's just true. It's like it's safe to die, you know? You got to remember that. And I think that's part of my disappointment in the last couple of years. Because just being who I am and knowing some of the people I've known, I know so many people who have this attitude that's like, oh, the West, uh, the Western world... It just has a really unhealthy relationship to death. I know so many people who make that their platform. I've known a number of people who have been involved in, you know, what's called like the death positivity movement. I've known a number of people who've been involved in that, mostly women. Women seem to be really into that for some reason. Of like normalizing death and accepting death. And it's been interesting to see some of those same people shrieking during coronavirus. And I'm not shaming them for that. But it's been interesting to see some of the same people, and I know so many people who talk about this. I know so many people who are interested in death and are comfortable talking about the reality of death, and they will say things like, the Western world just... It, it, they just have, we just have such an unhealthy relationship to death. And you can see how much those people are terrified of death now. Where some of those same people are the ones screaming, shrieking. You're unvac, you're unvaccinated, you're unvaccinated. Oh my God, we're all going to die. Oh my God. Some of those same people are some of the most hysterical and I don't shame them for it, but it just shows you that they were all talk. Or it shows you that there is a dimension to the reality of death. And I don't, I don't want to invite pain into my life by saying that. I don't want to pull a Job. I don't want to enter into the book of Job by being like, look at all these other people who are so scared of death. And then be faced with a situation where, you know, I'm contending with my own mortality or somebody else's mortality and I'm like, oh, God, I thought that I figured death out because I watched my mom die. And now I'm the one shrieking. You know, I don't want to turn into Job here, which is an incredible. You know, I recommend even if you don't want to read the Bible as a whole. Everybody should read the book of Job. 
The first time I read the Bible, I was just like, this is some of the most beautiful writing I've ever read. And not just the writing alone, what it's communicating. The book of Job is incredible. But I don't want to get on a high horse and act like I'm the master of death. Oh, look at all these other people. They're so scared of death. The world gets a little corony vine, and they're so scared to death. Look at them. I don't want to get that attitude. But it is interesting to see some of the same people who, to be honest, are kind of preachy about how the West doesn't have this healthy relationship with death. And we, sh- we should look at, you know, Eastern countries. We should look at Mexico. Mexico. Because they have such a healthier relationship with death. And you see some of these same people who get on that, that high horse... And they're the ones shrieking the loudest about coronavi. And coronavi has really revealed how truly unhealthy our view of death is. Whatever coronavi is, I don't know what it is. I wouldn't claim to know what it is. That's why I want to that's why I feel like we should be talking more about that. Not from a biological scientific point of view necessarily, but like where what actually is it, guys? Where did it come from? We have to know more by now. Can we get philosophical about it? Because nobody's willing to do that. You know, I do see some Christians and some people like that say, like, this is God punishing us. And you know what? I like that idea a lot more than some of the alternatives. I don't necessarily believe that. But you know what? I I, kind of like when I hear people say that. Because I do pay attention to some Christians who have said that very thing, that coronavi is God, you know, punishing us. It's divine punishment. To be honest, I find that a healthier viewpoint than some of the alternatives I hear, some of the popular alternatives, because at least it's philosophical. And I think that's one of the core components that's missing from the last year and a half, is it's anti-philosophical. You're not allowed to think about it. You're not allowed to consider it in any way except what's presented to you right now by authorities and their stooges, of which there are many, and whom I don't hate, but whom consistently disappoint me. It's Coronavi is anti-philosophical, the way it's presented to us, the way we're expected to react to it. To me, it was philosophical from the beginning. How could it not be? And so, you know, it's it's been illuminating, though. Because the number of people who are just going through their lives, no matter, even if they get vacked, especially if they get vacked, they seem that much more scared of it. doesn't seem to make a difference. Seems that the more that we do, the more scared people become of it. And whatever it is, I don't know, like I said, I don't know what it is. But even if it is excruciating, even if it does devastate you, even if it's something you don't want, even if it's something you don't want to die of, it's still... You know, it's it's uh, it's strange to me that we've only become that certain people, at least, 
have only become that much more terrified and they're shrieking even louder and it's become an opportunity for them to turn on their fellow man. And it's all because of death. The prospect of death has caused people to turn on their fellow man for not responding to the prospect of death in the same way that they do. Because as I said, it's anti-philosophical. Their approach is anti-philosophical. I'd call that a pretty unhealthy relationship with death. And, uh, you know, again, I don't say that from a place of judgment of them. I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to shriek. But we see that people who postured, people who wanted you to believe that they had some sort of wisdom when it came to mortality, we can see that wisdom just flew out the window. It's like an airplane window got busted out and every they just got sucked out. They just got sucked out. Get sucked. Got sucked out. That's what it feels like. But my whole approach to coronavirus has just been I don't know what the heck it is, man. Could be a hoax. I haven't treated it like a hoax. But you know what? I wouldn't even care if it was a hoax. That's my approach. It could be a hoax. I don't care if it's a hoax. It's not that I believe it's a hoax. I know it's not a hoax. I know for a fact. No, I don't I don't know anything. It wouldn't make a difference to me whether or not it's a hoax, a reality, if it's exactly what it's been presented as. I don't know what it is. Divine punishment? Just some weird blip of science? Of of nature rather? Nature produced this like it does other diseases, or if it was produced in a laboratory, which I feel like if that's true, we should know that. We deserve to know that, and we should respond accordingly. Somebody should be held accountable. But what, what bothers me most about it, it boils down to the way that there is this anti-philosophy And if you want to get away from the word philosophy, I'm just using that for lack of a better word. I'm not saying you have to get Nietzschean about it. I'm not saying you have to get Nietzschean Nietzschean about it. I'm just saying you should be allowed to think about it in your own terms and express that. And that's what's not allowed. Because it is death that is being debated. And if we should be allowed one thing, we should be allowed to think about death and express that however we see fit. That's my opinion. Anti-philosophical. And it's not that I feel like I have the right perspective on death. But I do feel fortunate that I experienced a very a death that was very intimate to me right before all this started. I do feel that this primed me for it in some way. It prepared me for this conversation. 
And, you know, if this is how people respond to this, if people respond to this in such a disappointing way, it tells us a lot about how they would respond to other things, to other realities. And the fact that everything has become hyperlinked and interconnected together, the fact that this has become politicized, and those politics have been grouped with other, they've been bundled with these other political ideas, where if you have this take on coronavirus, or rather, if you don't have this take, that means you also have this take on this thing that has nothing to do with death, that has nothing to do with illness, that has nothing to do with disease. But we live in a bundled world where we bundle these things together. But it's worth reminding people that death itself is completely safe. I agree. I don't want coronavirus. Whether it's a hoax that can kill you or it's a, a reality that isn't as, or whether it's a real disease that has been overblown a little bit, that primarily impacts older people and overweight people unhealthy people because that's the other side of it is that we can't even talk about what a healthy person is not that there's one true definition of health but we have a basic idea we have a basic idea of what a healthy body is not that that makes somebody a better person but a healthy body does respond better to certain circumstances that an unhealthy bottle unhealthy body an unhealthy bottle an unhealthy body might not respond as well to it doesn't mean a healthy body is you know invincible but we're not even allowed to talk about what a healthy body truly is in this world and so whether you think it's a hoax that'll kill you or a real disease that you can survive, or somewhere in between, doesn't seem to matter. We can see the ugliness that has emerged from all this. And I think part of that ugliness is that all those people are right. We do have an unhealthy relationship to death. We are terrified of it. I mean, I know somebody who's an, an older person who won't even use the word death. Some people that are close to them died, and they won't, they won't even say that those people died. They will only use euphemisms, and that's this person's right. This person has the right to use euphemisms instead of using the word death. Personally, you know, to me, it's, it's all very casual. You know, and when I talk to people about my mom's death... I'm like, oh yeah, she's dead. <laughs> you know? She's dead. Doesn't trouble me to say that. Doesn't disturb me to say that. It's okay that she's dead. And I loved her more than anything. Truly. There's not a single person I've ever known on this planet who I love more than my mom and I do love other people quite a bit but there's nobody else who I love more than her not even close 
but it feels totally fine and okay for me to just say, she's dead. There's a guy who does a show who, when someone mentions that somebody they love died, he goes, she dead. He's an older black guy. If you know who he is, you know who he is. He's a very, uh, you know, he has some controversial views, you could say. He's a Christian man. But, but he makes a joke of death. If somebody somebody will be like, somebody, if people will call into his show and they'll say, well, my mom passed away. And he goes, she's dead. In this really flippant, joking way. And I love it. In the same way that I laugh hysterically at Ram Dass's joke about death being completely safe. A ghost telling a living person, oh, death? Well, I can tell you it's completely safe. When this guy says, she did. I laugh. Because I know it. I feel it. And that's what's so glorious about it, is if it's somebody who you truly loved, and you're okay with the reality that they died because that's what happens... And maybe the circumstances have to be right for you to feel that way. Like if my mom died when I was 10 years old, that might be a wound that would never heal. But because my mom died when I was 34 and she was 71 and the circumstances were right, it's okay. It doesn't feel like an open wound to me. Maybe something else will reopen that. You know, maybe there is a wound there that will reopen. I don't know. But I can joke about it. Like I was talking to my friend Miles a few months ago, a while back, and more than a few months ago, it was probably a year ago. And we were, we were joking about, like, the idea of telling your mom something. Like, I told my mom that I was going to do that. And then I was like, oh, wait, my mom's dead. And we both just started laughing hysterically. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, if you know what that is, you know it, and it's funny. And it's not a mockery of her. It actually makes her death more sacred to me to be able to do that. And she would appreciate it. But it doesn't matter because she's dead. It doesn't matter if she would find it funny or not because she's dead. I find it funny. I happen to know she would find it funny because I know her sense of humor. But I don't even have to think about it because it's like... I feel... <laughs> I feel okay with doing that. And so that's important too. Because a lot of people are governed by the opinions of their, dead, of their dead loved ones. Your father would be turning to his grave... I don't think so. I don't think he cares about that anymore. It's like my mom's friend who was like, I wonder what your mom would think about Joe Obama bin Biden being elected. And I'm like, doesn't matter. She's dead. I don't think that she, I don't think that her spirit is concerned with American politics anymore. I understand it's worth considering. I'm not anti-philosophy. And if that's the form of philosophy that you want to practice, like what would so and so think of the election? What would this dead person think about the presidential election? If that's the form of philosophy you want to talk about, you're more than welcome to. I'll never shut that down. But it, it, it seems like fan fiction to me.
To me, it's fan fiction when people talk about what their dead loved one would think about politics after they died or what they would think about what I find funny. You know, when people like live their lives governed and I mean, that's inspiring to people like, I mean, I'm not shutting that down because I mean, there are certain thoughts I have where I think like, well, I don't want to do this because that would disappoint my mom. Like, I I don't want to ever kill myself because I just think about how my mom would feel about that. How even though she's gone, the idea of killing myself seems like such a horrible disservice to my mom's memory, to her love for me, that I would never want to do that if I could help it. So in my own way, I'm governed by that too. But not in the sense that I worry about what she would think about this or that. And I think some people do delve into this fan fiction where they're thinking about what somebody who's dead would think, and they constantly think about that. Oh, he's turning in his grave. If that makes that person turn in their grave, they must not have enough to keep them occupied in the afterlife. If they're worried about like something you did that they don't agree with while you're still living, they must not be busy enough. The afterlife might not be busy enough for them if they're worried about some opinion you have in life, some action you took, the, uh, the presidential election. And I said to my mom's friend, and you know, I wasn't dismissive because she's a sweet lady, but I did, I did say, like, the nice thing is, it doesn't matter. I, I think I said it nicer than that, but I was like, the nice thing is, I don't, where she's at, they don't, got, they don't need to worry about politics. Wherever she is, she doesn't need to worry about that. It doesn't matter to her whether Joe Obama been Biden got elected or not. We think it does, though. I mean, that's a, that just shows you the level of importance that we place on those things, the level of investment that we place. We think that a presidential election is so important that dead people are reacting to it. That's some... Uh, that's a level of narcissism, I think, that living people have, where the things that we are consumed with seem so important to us right now. But, you know, I know there are people who regularly see people die, obviously people who work in medicine, doctors, hospice care they see people die all the time but it's different obviously it's their job it's not they're not somebody's son alone with them behind a curtain watching their unconscious body as life leaves it so it's different and I can't pretend to know what it's like to see death all the time. I can't pretend to know what it's like to be in war and to see your friends get killed. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, you were in Vietnam and like all your friends got killed next to you? Isn't that fascinating? You know, I would never say that. I can tell you that my experience was fascinating. And it continues to be fascinating. 
Like her bed was one of those big beds. It was one of it's one of those big beds. It's like a queen size bed. Took up a lot of space, big wooden frame. Took up like half the room. And it's weird to walk into that room right now and it's not there. This big bed. That bed has been in this house since she moved in. 15, 16 years, 17 years. However long. 16 yeah, I think 17 years. That bed has been in that room. Half my life almost. She's had that bed in that room. And it was sacred to her. Her bed was very important. And it's strange to walk in and it's just not there. It's dismantled. The mattresses are leaning against a table and the frame is dismantled. That itself is strange. That this object that was so sacred where my mom laid her head, where she dreamt, where she went to bed at night and woke up every morning. The fact that you can just dismantle that and lean it against something. Pretty incredible. So the whole process is pretty interesting. And maybe not everyone would think about it that way. To some people, life is very material. Or like, Of course you can dismantle a bed. It's just a bed. And it is just a bed. But you have thoughts about it. It represents something to you. A body is just a body. But there's a lot more to it, too. I see Coronivai as an opportunity to learn a bit more about death. Not that you should just blindly be like, oh, if it gets me, we shouldn't do anything. We should just let Coronivai kill us. I mean, I'm fine with somebody having that opinion. I'm not opposed to that opinion. It's a natural opinion. But we've been presented with this great opportunity to think about the reality of death. Whatever Coronivai is, it gave everybody in the world this opportunity to think about death. And I've been disappointed. That's my word here. I've been disappointed in the response on that level. When you get beyond the science, when you get beyond the medicine, when you get past the biology, definitely when you get past the politics, when people were given this opportunity to sit in their homes being told you couldn't do anything, and we're still being told that in certain ways, we're still limited, but during those months where you were told, stay home, you can't go to work, you can't go to school, you can barely go to the store, it was a great opportunity to really think of the re- about the reality of death, and I don't know that people did that. They were shrieking, and they continue to shriek, and I don't support that. I support people having their own approach, doing what they feel is right, but I don't know that the shrieking really has done anybody any good. It certainly hasn't convinced people, certainly hasn't made a convincing argument. I think the reason for that is that, once again, it's anti-philosophical. Because if there's one thing that death should be, no matter what your belief in it is, no matter what you think it is, 
no matter what your take on the human spirit is, no matter what how you define the limitations of human existence, the body, the spirit, the soul, no matter what you think happens before and after, death at its core, the prospect of death, especially during a pandemic, should be philosophical. And so when you listen to people comment about Coronavi, which doesn't seem to end, and it will continue to be discussed, just pay attention to that. Who is willing to be philosophical about this? And who is just completely opposed to, philosoph- to, to a philosophical approach? Who is anti-philosophical? Don't demonize them. Don't play their game. But be aware of it. Be aware of who is willing to be philosophical about death when the prospect of death is a constant in every conversation. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.